please take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Romans, as we did last week, and to chapter 8, one more time in this, uh, this book and this passage before we resume our study of the gospel according to Luke. But this morning we will be in Romans chapter 8, and for today we will read and consider the last nine verses, starting in verse 31. So if you would turn there and follow along as I read. Paul says this to the believers at Rome. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As we considered last time, there is a time and a place for doing something, and the new year is the time and place when we often begin to do that. And we consider actions that we might take in the coming year. And perhaps your New Year's goals or habits or resolutions are off to a wonderful start seven days in. Perhaps you've already forgotten that you even made them. One way or another, uh, we like to make goals or take actions for the upcoming year. But sometimes, uh, and in fact all the time, but uh, in addition to goals and actions and activities, one of the things that we need to have as believers is knowing and believing certain things, understanding and remembering certain truths. Christianity is about many things, uh, of course with Christ at the center of it, but one of the things that is constant in the Christian, uh, in the Christian faith is the fact that there is truth about who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing that we need to know and that we need to remember. And these passages talk about this. The Apostle Paul is not at all against telling people what to do about giving commandments, and he does many of those things. But here in Romans chapter 8, we find his encouragement in light of the challenges and the difficulties of life and those which come in particular because we are Christians. The things that come into our lives because we are being uh, attacked or persecuted or suffering in some way because we believe the gospel. But of course, at the same time, these are the things that are orchestrated in our lives because we are those who belong to God and because we believe the gospel. 
God is in charge of all things, but he uses the things in our lives in a special way if we belong to him. And in addition to that, we know throughout all of this that God is for us. God is, in the right way of saying it, on our side. He doesn't sanction everything that we do. God does not look with approval upon every single action or thought that we have. But in one fundamental sense, God is not against us, but rather he is on our side. And we need to understand and to remember this when we go throughout life, because many times we'll be tempted to forget this. Many times we'll be tempted to think that God is distant from us or that God doesn't care, or maybe even that God is against us. And instead of that, we need to understand God's favor toward us. We need to understand and to remember that God has an unchanging favor toward us if we belong to him. And that favor began long before we ever even became Christians, as we read in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God has shown his favor toward his people in everything that he has done from eternity past for us all the way until now and what he will do forever into the future. God has an unchanging favor toward his people. And what I want us to see this morning from this text are three benefits of that. Three benefits of God's unchanging favor toward those of us who are Christians and who therefore belong to him as his people. Now these benefits are going to come in the answer to the question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Paul wraps up a discussion. He wraps up an exposition of many different things regarding the gospel and our Christian life and our future hope of glory. And he stops uh, after these eight, almost eight chapters and really the details that he's laid out in just a few verses before about God's plan for us. And he says, what do we need to say in response to all of this? What shall we say? How are we to think and to talk about our circumstances? What is to be our response? And you notice the question is phrased a certain way. Paul doesn't say, are these things true? Should we believe these things or not? Rather, that's a given. And instead of simply saying, do we believe this? He says, how are we going to live in light of these things? This is what he means when he says, what then shall we say to these things? How are we supposed to think in our hearts about the troubles that come into our lives? How are we supposed to think about how God's truth, his sovereignty, his love, his care, his plan, his purpose, his redemption of us in Christ, the future glory that we have. How are we supposed to think about all of these things and talk about them? And how is this supposed to color our entire life? That's what he's saying. What do we say to our circumstances in light of the truths that God has revealed to us? And to help us to see the importance of Paul's question and, and the need for us to actually consider this and answer, what shall we say to these things? Maybe we should think first, uh, what do we say in our sufferings and our adversities? What do you say when these things happen? What do you say about your life when you know and have believed the gospel and then you run into trouble? Or maybe you run into good circumstances. What do you say in response to your circumstances? We often say, I hate my circumstances. I don't like what God is doing. In fact, I don't even think that God is good. 
He's not holding to the standard that I want him to hold to. We might say, uh, I thought my life was supposed to be better than this. Why is someone else's better? Or we might just think that. We might say, why am I not making any progress in my life? Why am I not seeing my circumstances change and get better? Or I can't see any end to this or any way out of this. Maybe we talk to ourselves and we say things like this. It's okay for me to be upset about what's going on in my life. It's okay for me to be angry and I'm being mistreated. And so it is the person's fault who's mistreating me. I don't deserve to be suffering like this. And I hate the people who are causing it. Uh, Or we might go to the opposite end of the spectrum and say, you know, I'm so bad that I probably deserve to be suffering like this. And in fact, God is just giving me what I deserve. And that's why my circumstances are happening. And since I deserve that, that's not really ever going to change. My circumstances are just punishment for what I've done. These are maybe some of the things that you say when things are hard around you, when things aren't going your way. But Paul says, instead of what do you say or what would you say if you didn't know and believe and appropriate the truth, Paul says, what should we say? What shall we say in response to these things? And then he tells us that we are to think about God being for us, about God's favor. And he begins this by saying in verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? The first thing that Paul tells us about God's favor is that it protects us from all adversaries. God's favor protects us from all adversaries. Notice here that he does not say God is for us. He says if God is for us, not because he's questioning it, but because he's taking this as the basis of his argument. He's already demonstrated that God is for us. And we need to remember this, that when we have read and understood all that God says in the gospel, when we understand what he's done for us in Christ, when we understand his perfect plan for us from eternity past to eternity future, then these are the reasons why we say God is for us. We don't look and say God is for us because he helped me to succeed in my football game last night. We don't say God is for me because he helped me, uh, helped me succeed in my performance or my job or my grades or because my family is prospering. That's not the reason why we say I know God is for me. We know God is for us because of the objective truth that's true for every believer. Because of all that God has told us and done for us in the gospel. That is the basis of the argument that he makes. God is for us because of all that I've told you before in this letter. And if this is true, then let's think about what that means for us. If God is for us, then he makes our enemies irrelevant. He makes our enemies irrelevant. If God is for us, who is against us? Now, Paul obviously knows uh, and could answer the question by giving specific names to this question in a certain way. He could say, well, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. He tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He could name Hymenaeus and Alexander. He could name all kinds of people that opposed him, people that literally opposed Christians. He isn't saying God is for us and so we will have no enemies. He's not saying that. What he's saying is it doesn't matter who is against us. It doesn't matter. Now, we don't have to delight in evil things. We don't have to want hardship. We don't have to delight in suffering in and of itself. But when it comes, what we can say is God is on our side. And can anyone really successfully oppose us? 
Now you say, well, yeah, they can. They, uh, they persecute us. And in fact, Paul even talks later on in this passage about um, not only tribulation and distress and persecution, but he even talks about death. So surely people can oppose us and bring terrible things into our life. And that's true. So what is answering this question in this way take? If we're going to say who is against us, we must be viewing things on a certain time horizon. A certain time horizon. We have to take a very long-term view. We have to. There's no other way to be able to apply this properly without understanding that we are seeing things beyond the here and now. This is hard to do, but it is the life of a Christian. And, of course, the great thing about it is this is how reality works. That everyone lives for a time, and then after that comes the much longer time. Um, there are people who live for the here and now, or maybe a few weeks down the road, a few months down the road, maybe even a few years, or even decades down the road. But when hardship comes their way, they really don't know what to do with it, because they don't have any category for a time beyond the present life, for the life to come. We need a longer time horizon. You may be aware that there are many people who would otherwise love to invest in uh, stocks because uh, they would like the return, but they are scared away from it because of the risk profile. And even people that sometimes do get involved turn out to not necessarily have the stomach for it when there's a market downturn and they uh, can't hang in through the lows, the price drops, and they can't see their portfolio going down by such a large amount in such a short period of time. And so they... Uh, they get scared and may even bail out. And the reason that they can't handle it is because in that moment, it feels very uncertain. It feels like I'm losing and I'm going to lose. Now, it is true that historically, there is no absolute guarantee that any investment at all is going to uh, ever recover from a drop. But unfortunately, this is how many people treat God. Bad things happen to their quote-unquote portfolio, and what happens? They bail out on God. They say, this isn't worth it. Their circumstances change. They were fine when they were riding high and, you know, God is on my side. God is good. Everything is great. But then when things take a downturn, they panic. And they say, I don't know about this, this whole experience. Jesus warns about this in the parable of the different soils. And he says, there's a certain kind of person who immediately receives the word with joy. But when persecution or affliction arises because of the word, they bail out. They don't want anything to do, it, do with it anymore. Why? Because they were expecting something in this life. They were expecting to live in a way that was peaceful and it avoided the sufferings that may come by virtue of being a Christian. But if we understand that that just simply comes with the territory and that our return horizon is not this life, but it is eternity, then that changes our perspective. And that means that in the long run, it's not just a likelihood or a percentage chance that things turn up as it is with equities. But instead, it's a guarantee from God. We know that God is for us. And so even if people are against us, even if they are incredibly hostile, we know that God is doing good in our lives, that he's aimed at a perfect future for us in eternity, and that he is not only that, with us also here and now. God is for us. He is working through the sufferings. He is working even while people oppose us, and he is by our side. We read about this in the well-known psalm, Psalm 23. And what does the psalmist say there in verse 4? Even though I walk through what? 
the valley of the shadow of death. He's talking about a dark, dark, scary place. And he says, even though I walk there, I fear no evil. I fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. You are with me. When the good shepherd is with us, when we know that he is on our side, when we know that we have his favor, even though undeserved, we can be comforted in the most difficult and the most unpleasant of circumstances. And so while not downplaying the reality that uh, persecution is unpleasant, that it hurts, that it's wrong, that we shouldn't eagerly desire to go through it, while recognizing that sufferings are very real and that this is not according to God's original way that he created the world, that the world was made good, but that it fell, and this is not the way things are supposed to be. While not denying those realities, Paul does say, even if anyone or anything is against us, God is for us, and he makes those enemies irrelevant. Additionally, what we learn in verse 32 is that even if things seem bad, the truth is that God keeps nothing good from us. He keeps nothing good from us. So when you're in a hard time or when other people are against you, it might seem like this. God, if you could just change my circumstances and if you could take this thing out of my life and put this thing in, then that would be good. Right now is bad and what would be the case if you did this for me would be good. And it is okay, I want you to make sure to remember, to pray for these things. It is okay to ask God to change those circumstances that you perceive as bad that might really be hard and really suffering and to say, God, I think it would be better if this was happening. Would you please do this? But regardless of the answer, whatever comes into our life, we need to remember that God is doing good. And if we don't have something, it's not because God is stingy and it's not because God is against us, but rather God will give us all good things. Sometimes people feel this way. They feel like God is against them. And you might even feel like God is against you. You're a Christian, but God is kind of, you know, he's like pushing, like pushing on you. And, you know, he, he, uh, he did some stuff for you, but there's really like his kind of fundamental disposition is, is against you. What do you do when you think that's true? Well, let's look right here in verse 32. And he says, he who did not spare his own son. His own son, his one and only son, by the way, as we learn from other places in the Bible, uh, to spare someone is uh, to hold someone back from suffering, to spare his life. This is not, uh, can you spare an extra one? This is save someone from undergoing a really hard thing. And instead of doing that, what he did was deliver him over for us all. He handed him over. And on the contrary, uh, instead of sparing him from suffering, he gave him over for that very purpose of suffering. Now, in a vacuum, this might, of course, seem harsh. Who would want to put their son through those circumstances? But not only was this a willing sacrifice on the part of the son, Jesus Christ himself laid down his life. He willingly went through that suffering. But Paul is trying to convey something here, which is the willingness of God to do anything for his people. Anything that is within his character, anything that he is capable of doing, anything that fits with his abilities as a righteous and holy God, he is willing to do for his people. Anything. And so he doesn't look at us and say, I'll do anything for you, but this one thing is a little bit too much. Instead, he gave us the greatest possible gift. And he wasn't just willing or persuaded or cajoled into doing this. He came up with the idea. 
he proactively did not spare his own son. He came up with the plan to send his own son. And so the question that follows is the logical conclusion from this. If he did this, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. Does this mean you get everything on your prayer request list? No. Does it mean that you have all the possessions in the world? No. Does it mean you get to experience everything that is possible to experience? No. What is he saying here then? What he's saying is you're not going to miss out on anything that is for your good. Not one thing. If it is good for us, then we will get it. And so if it's good to be relieved of a certain suffering or burden, if that's what God determines that we need, then that's what we'll get. He's not going to hold that back. He's not going to say, you know, I gave you my son, but, you know, changing that circumstance, that's too difficult. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm willing to let you have that. No, it says he will freely give us all things. And the word here indicates gracious giving, gracious giving. It's not so much the lavishness of the gift, although God does do that. But rather, the point is, he's giving with no strings attached. God gives out of his generosity. The lack of further conditions placed upon us in order to receive it is the point. Now, God does give and he wants us to respond in a certain way. He wants us to be grateful. He wants us to appreciate what we have. He wants us to worship him and to live for him in response. And it is the appropriate thing for us to do this. But uh, God doesn't give us Jesus and then just make us pay for the rest. This is not a uh, giving us a sort of a razor and then telling us you've got to go buy the razor blades. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us everything that we need. Everything that we need. And here we see again the wonder of the cross of Christ and how it is so often the answer for so many of our problems. Some of the things that some of you suffer are more than just run-of-the-mill hardships. They are really, really bad things. And sometimes they happen at the hands of heartless and hostile people. And uh, when we look at what God did in bringing about our good, what do we see? Well, we see that it's not just us that suffer the wrong of other people. But God himself suffered the greatest injustice ever committed as his own son was put to death. His own son who was uniquely special in all of existence, not to mention special to God the Father. But he suffered. God did willingly choose this path of greatest loss, but it was perpetrated by wrongdoers, by evil men. And Acts 2.23 says this, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The son of God was murdered. God suffered this great loss. And he understands. And he cares. And he was willing to go through this to give us whatever is our greatest need. And so if God wouldn't hold back his most precious possession, but instead he would give it for our sake, how is he not willing to give us anything? Anything that we need when all other things are less than what he's already given. So then, how does God feel toward us or how does God think toward us? God is for us. God shows his favor toward us. Now, sometimes it's easy to forget this. And there are things that conspire to make us forget God's disposition toward us. Uh, things like God's discipline of his children, which can make it seem like he's upset and doesn't love us. 
Um, or maybe it's the holiness of God, which causes a certain type of fear, where we know that God is not someone that we can just willy-nilly approach as if it doesn't matter, uh, but that we often wrongly tip over, even as Christians, into a fear of God's judgment, because we know that he can and does judge people, but we forget that the fear of God for a child of God is somewhat different than the fear of God for someone who has not believed the gospel. And then we can look at the circumstances we face and we can take those and we can interpret them as God being opposed to us or at least apathetic. But when we look to the sending of Jesus and to the cross, we find the antidote to all these things. And we can say, how would God in any way fail to do anything that is in our best interest? He will give us everything, freely so, at that. And he does so with Christ, also with him. So God's favor protects us from all adversaries. It protects us from all adversaries. Secondly, Paul tells us this, that God's favor vindicates us, vindicates us against all accusations. He vindicates us against all accusations. And when we arrive at verse 33 and verse 34, he addresses both the potential charges that might come against us and the potential condemnation that would result from those charges. One worry that people may have in their fallen state is this. What's going to happen when God evaluates me? What is going to happen when the real me is seen or when all my deeds are kind of added up at the end of life? What is that going to look like? And for someone outside of Christ, that is a very, very legitimate fear because God is going to judge according to all of our deeds, not only on the outside, but also he looks upon the heart. So God is going to judge. And if you've not repented, then you should fear and then you should Throw yourself upon the gracious mercy of Christ because he offers to save you from the judgment that you and I and all of us deserve. We worry, though, even as Christians sometimes, what's going to happen when God evaluates me? What are we going to do on the court date? What's going to happen when we stand before the judge? Paul asks this question, once again rhetorically, who will bring a charge against God's Elect. This is a legal accusation. And to even, uh, to even address the question, he answers it kind of in the asking, saying, who will bring a charge against, who does he say? God's elect. There are some answers built into the question. God's chosen people. They are God's, and they're God's because he's chosen them to be so. He has selected them. And it's almost like uh, you know, going to someone who is the son of a very prominent government official and trying to prosecute them for something and saying, you know, this just really doesn't feel like it's got a great chance of succeeding. And someone might hear that you're trying to do that and they say, wait a minute, you're trying to bring a charge against who again? Who? His son? And you really think you're going to have success there? This is what Paul is saying here. You're going to bring a charge against who? Against God's chosen people? Are you crazy? Why do you think that you would have any success? And that's before he even describes what God actually does for us. That just describes our relationship to him. But he goes on and he does describe what God does. He says that God is the justifier. God is the one who justifies. So who is it that is in the courtroom who tells someone and tells everyone who is righteous? God is the one who does this. And he is for us. Justify, it's a wonderful theological term. 
The underpinning idea of it is to declare someone righteous. Many times this means to vindicate them and to actually say they never did anything wrong. The charges are false. They're not guilty. And in our case, we are justified. We're vindicated before a watching world on the last day because, not because we've done nothing wrong, because we've done plenty wrong, but because God justifies us by his grace through the work of Christ. In other words, we are justified and vindicated despite all that we have done. And God here is said by Paul to justify us. Paul very quickly making the point when he asks this question, who's going to bring a charge? He simply says God is going to justify us. And in fact, he already has done so. Romans chapter 3 talks about this idea. And it begins in verse 21 by saying, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, even being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified how? As a gift. As a gift. By his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God sent Christ, put him on the cross, poured out his justice upon him. Christ took away our sins. And now God, as a gift, not as a reward for works, but as a gift, gives us a perfectly righteous, permanent, eternal standard and standing of holiness and of righteousness before him. We stand before God completely justified. We're able to do this Despite the fact that God must punish sin because of what Christ did. And he says this in verses 25 and 26 of Romans 3. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can a righteous God declare someone righteous and just and as if they're sinless, even though they've committed all kinds of sin? Because the sin was paid by Christ. The debt was paid by him. So God can remain just and he can declare us righteous, even though we have sinned so badly. And the criteria is, are you one who has faith in Jesus? Faith results in justification. This is the way we are justified. Not by faith plus works, not by faith plus any other merit, not not faith plus anything else. But it is through Christ and by his grace and it is on the basis of our trusting him and faith in him. God is the justifier, but at the same time, the Son, Christ, is our mediator. Romans 8 tells us this in verse 34. Christ is our mediator. Um, If it's as if we, uh, we need more than this, and yet we don't. If, if it was just God justifying alone, that would be enough. But he looks on the other side and said, well, who is the one who condemns someone? Who's the one who judges? Well, that is, surprisingly for many, Jesus. Christ Jesus. People don't think of him as the judge, but this is exactly who he is. He's the one who will come and judge the world in righteousness. He's going to do this when he returns, and he is the one who condemns. But, but, look at what he has done. He died, yes, rather, he was raised, he is at the right hand of God, and he does what? He intercedes for us. He appeals to God on our behalf. 
far from being merely exalted and above all things, the Lord Jesus Christ has us on his mind and is interceding, praying on our behalf. We saw this uh, with the Holy Spirit in verse 26. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and according to the will of God. But Jesus Christ himself intercedes for his people. He is at the right hand of the Father. He can plead his blood for our own justification and forgiveness. And additionally, he prays for what is good and what is best for us. He prays on our behalf. He intercedes for us. So what's the message of verse 33 and 34? It is this, that two parties, the only two parties who could actually do anything against us in a court of law, a moral court of law, these two are actually acting on our behalf. They're on our side. They're working for us. We submit to them. We follow them. We are not their masters, but they are representing us, and they are working for us, and they are for our good. So that's God's work. And now he turns in light of that to the circumstances. And he backs up and essentially points to one more thing about God that is unchanging throughout all our adversities, which is the love of God. The love of God. And so verses 35 to 39 tell us this, that God's favor preserves us through all adversities. It preserves us through all adversities. Paul asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ. It turns into a long rhetorical question that he does, in fact, then later actually answer, making it not quite so rhetorical. But on its own, it would stand that way. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What's the implied answer? No one. And then he says, but I'm going to tell you anyway how it can't be anyone. So first of all, he says no one can separate us from the love of Christ. And he says who here? He says who, not what. Uh, kind of speaking of these things that he talks about as, uh, as almost personified adversaries or enemies. And he names them tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Uh, famine, by the way, not just referring to the widespread famine that would come, but even personal hunger, going without food, having it not available. This isn't a voluntary fasting. This is unintended personal hunger. And he says all of these bad circumstances, even many of which are brought about by other people. He says, are these things going to be able to separate you from Christ's love? Say, well, it separates me from fun circumstances. It separates me from feeling good. It separates me from certainty about the future. So I don't like it. And Paul says, yes, but there is something that you need to worry about more than that. Don't just worry about what's going to come in the future. Don't just worry about how your life is going. But through all of that, draw this line straight to this idea. Are you loved by Christ or not? Are you loved by him? Because if you are, that makes all the difference in eternity. So what will separate us or who will separate us from the love of Christ? Certainly none of these circumstantial adversaries. He goes on next then to say, nothing can stop our victory through Christ. Nothing can stop our victory through Christ. Now, he cites here Psalm 44, 22. He says, just as it is written. And really in doing this, he is acknowledging that, in fact, something is not right. He's not downplaying the sufferings. What he's doing is he is elevating what God is doing in the midst of them. He doesn't say, you know, this isn't that bad. 
What he's saying is that the good is so good that it's going to outweigh the bad in a way that you almost can't even compare. Uh, Psalm 44 is from the sons of Korah. And uh, just to give you a little summary of this, they have been told of what God did. If you go through Psalm 44, they've been told of what God did through his might on behalf of their forefathers. He gave them conquest over the promised land by his own hand. And that shows how powerful he is and how much he's shown favor, even in circumstances, to his people before. Um, they express a confidence in God and what he alone can do for them against their enemies. Um, the, they say in this psalm, we know what you can do. We're not going to trust in ourselves. We want you to defeat the people who are attacking us. We, we know that no matter what we do, we can't do it on our own. But then they go on to say in the psalm, they're in affliction. And it doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because they have not turned away from God as a people. This doesn't make sense. Why, God, if we're faithful to you, are we suffering? And then you get to verse 22 and... You have these words, for your sake we are put to be put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's not just we, that we are suffering despite our allegiance to you. It's that we're suffering because of our allegiance and faithfulness to you. God, why is this happening? And this is the message that Paul is picking up here. It's Christians who are faithful to Christ but who suffer. And they're kind of in the same situation. We're not suffering, he says, for our sins here. We're suffering despite being loyal to you. So, Lord, please do something for us. Help us out. We are suffering all the time. There's an ongoing, constant state of life angle to this. And we shouldn't expect as Christians to avoid hardships on account of Christ or the gospel. Now, sometimes we don't have them just because of circumstances around us and uh, culture and so on. But other times we might... Uh, sort of orchestrate our circumstances to avoid it, then we need to not do that. We need to be faithful to Christ instead and be willing to put ourselves in the same position here out of a trust in his love. So there is a reality that something's not right, but note here what he says. We will be victorious. We will be victorious. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, I don't know about you, many of you may have had the same experience where you've been on, uh, as I have, both sides of some major beatdowns, we'll call them. In uh, my amateur sports career, I remember a basketball game in middle school where my team won a game 64 to 10. I can recall a similar score in a college intramural game where we couldn't even get the ball across the half court line. I've uh, played on, coached, rooted for teams that got blown out or destroyed the other team. Many of you have experienced the same thing as there's either a hopelessness or just uh, exhilaration for how well things are going. But none of these rises to the level of what happened on October 7, 1916 in a football game between Georgia Tech and Cumberland. You may know what happened. Um, there, was a, there was a little bit of a, of a disparity between the quality of the two teams. And uh, despite a running clock for much of the second half of the game, the final score was a still to this day record of Georgia Tech 222, Cumberland 0. 222 to 0. That is an overwhelming victory. And yet, that doesn't even compare to the victory that believers have in Jesus Christ. In all these things, he says, we overwhelmingly conquer. The word could be uh, hyper-conquer. We really, really conquer in a degree that is hard to describe. And the way that this happens is through him who loved us, Jesus Christ Christ. 
Now, notice the distinction here, verse 35, the love of Christ. And in some places, the Bible talks about Jesus loving us in an ongoing way, and he does. But here in verse 37, there is a decisive action that demonstrated it once for all. You note the past tense, him who loved us. This isn't saying he used to, this is saying he did, and he showed it. And how did he do it? By the cross. And the implication is, if he did that at that time, that has validity and that has implications for all of eternity. He loved us and therefore he does love us and he doesn't change in that. When you want to know if Jesus loves you today, look at what he did on the cross 2,000 years ago. If you want to know whether God loves you today, look what he did 2,000 years ago in sending his son. You don't have to depend upon how things are going at this moment because on the basis of what he did in the past, things are going under the surface better than you could imagine. In all these things, even suffering, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And one day, and what makes it actually meaningful that God is working now, is one day we will have the victory and it will be actually shown to the world. And we will be, as God has promised, glorified with him. And so Paul then comes to the end of this great section and makes a declaration in verse 38 about one more truth concerning God's favor and our afflictions uh, and our adversities rather. He says in verse 38 and 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. He says, for I am convinced. Uh, this is a word that Paul uses when he is sure of something by faith. He's convinced not so much because he's been reasoned into it. He's convinced because God has said it and he has made this his own. And you note here, he doesn't actually technically have to say this phrase at the beginning. He could simply start the verse in verse 38 and say, for neither death nor life and so on. He could just start talking about the things that won't separate us. But he says, no, I am convinced. I am persuaded. Why is he saying this? Not to note that he had to be persuaded or that he didn't use to believe this, but he's saying this because there is a, a confluence of two things, absolute truthfulness of what God has said and personal appropriation and conviction of that truth in his own heart where he says, I live by this truth. I live by the fact that God is not going to let any of these things separate us. To put it another way, many of you could come to this and, and answer the question, uh, what's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Death, life, angels, and so on. You say, no, no, none of those things. You know, the right answer is none of those things will separate us from the love of Christ. But the question is, are you convinced? Are you persuaded? And does that flow out in your life? Do you live as if all of these potentially or even real hard things are not going to separate you from God's love and cannot and do you live as if the love of God makes these things, not being able to separate you from it, uh, so valuable? Does it make it worth it to go through them because you know that God's love is that valuable? We could tell you these things are true, but do you appropriate it in the way that you think? Neither death nor life. Life is surprising here, by the way, isn't it? That life would separate us from the love of God. But Paul is just simply showing the extreme ends of the spectrum. And he's saying, you know, even maybe to that uh, smarty pants who thinks, you know, well, death may not separate us, but what about life? You know, just to get technical here. And he's saying, look, I'm just going to cover all the bases. Nothing is going to separate us. Not death or even life. 
nor angels, principalities, these heavenly powers, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing. And really, everything that exists fits on the inside of one of these boxes except for God himself as Trinity. All the created things. And he says, none of them can separate us from the love of God. And the place where God's love is found is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God does love in various ways, the Bible tells us, but every bit of the Christian's love is contained in this. The love that God has for us is brought to us in Jesus Christ. This is how we find favor with God, because we are in Christ. When you believe in him, you're united to him by faith, your position is now in him, and your favor in God's sight will never change. So you may go through hard times, you may have hard circumstances, you may want things to change, and of course at the end of the day, None of us will avoid some of these sufferings and the suffering that he describes of death. But even that does not take us out of the hands of our loving God and our loving Savior. And we need to remember this. No matter what's going on, no matter what we want, no matter what we strive for, we need to recall that the love of God for us is constant. And this changes the way that we view everything in our lives day to day. And I hope it does for you in the year ahead. Let's pray together and then we will sing and then we'll have a send off. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the hope and the certainty of the love of God, and that you never take that away from us. And may we appreciate that. May we revel in it. May we uh, live our lives and think our thoughts as though this is true, because it is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.